Amen. Let that be our prayer as we come now to the word of God. We'll be in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30 this morning. This is in, on page uh, 970 in your pew Bible. And I'm going to invite uh, B.J. Braley forwards to read for us this morning. And uh, hear the word of God. Again, Matthew eleven twenty-five to 30. Thank you, brother. Good morning, everyone. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Grass withers and the flower fades. Our God will stand forever. Amen. Thank you, BJ, for reading, brother. Well, as we turn to God's word, I want to pray one more time. Let's pray. Lord, we've already prayed many things, and we've sung a song, a really kind of prayer. But Lord, maybe this prayer is more for me than anyone else. Lord, I need your help. I feel very inadequate to do what you've called me to do. Lord, I pray for your empowering. I pray for your strength to open the word of God and to share these words with them, your words with them. And I ask you, give us all grace to receive them and not just hear them, but do them, to live them out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I've done the last couple of weeks now, I'm going to do one more time this morning, and I'm going to share something that the Lord laid on my heart while I was in Kenya to share with the people there. And so if there's any folks from Kenya watching, we love you. We're thankful for you. And uh, maybe some of you have heard these words before. I hope it blesses you again. One thing I realized when I was in Kenya was that uh, there are many uh, differences culture to culture. We've got a number of, of cultures and backgrounds even represented here in this room. And certainly that was the case in Kenya. Kenya Kenyan culture is very different in many ways from, from our own, even though at one point uh, Kenya was a British colony and there's similar language and there are similar uh, cultural elements. There are great differences I could share some of those differences 
with you. And I've already done that over the last uh, few weeks, but I'm going to refrain from going on about the differences. What I wanted to talk about at the start here was that despite many obvious differences culture to culture, there's also many common threads culture to culture, many things we all share and have in common. And one thing in particular that we all have in common. And that's a dirty word called sin. Sin can be found in any culture. There is brokenness everywhere. Because people are everywhere. Right? Me and Tim, a pastor friend that I went over to Kenya with, we talked about this a lot through our trip. Of, of course, we noted the differences. Wow, that's really different or that's really different. But some of their problems all boiled down to the same thing, the same struggles we have here. People are people. We're all broken and we're all sinful. Scripture says in Romans 3, chapter or Roman th- Romans 3, chapter 3, verse 23. Sorry, goofy note there. Uh, it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have broken the command of God, right? And fallen short. And this manifests itself in many ways. And culture to culture, you'll see different manifestations, but the same underlying reality. Scripture also says that the wages of sin is death. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23. But the free gift of God is what? That's right. Eternal life, salvation in Jesus. And that is also offered to everyone, everywhere. Whatever your culture or background. Sin not only separates us from God. This is what I actually, when I was in Kenya, I had a backpack with me. At this point, I've made a note here to pick up my backpack and put it on. Um, <clears throat> but I had a, a backpack that me and Tim carried everywhere that had all sorts of items that we were maybe going to need along the way. Um, different problems arise in different places, and we wanted to be prepared. So I had this backpack everywhere I went, and I likened that backpack to a burden of sin. I said, this is what sin is like. It restricts us and weighs us down. I was going to share about, when I was in, in Kenya, I was going to share about um, a, a book that many of you probably have heard of, maybe even read, called The Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody read that, familiar with that book? It's actually been translated in, I think, a couple hundred different languages. It's a really well-known Christian classic And there actually was a translation uh, in Swahili, which is one of the languages spoken in Kenya. But many of the people we were working with didn't um, speak perfect Swahili. And I wasn't sure if they'd be familiar with the story, so I I set that aside. But I think I can share that with, with you. Many of you know the story of a pilgrim named Christian who has this burden that he wants to get rid of. And it grows heavier and heavier as he goes along his journey. And at one point in the journey, he's finally able to set the burden down, which I'll get to in a little bit. But I picked up at this point in my message to the folks there in Kenya, I picked up a backpack and I put it on and I wore it the whole time I was preaching until I got to that moment. But I talk with, I talk with them about how sin is very much like a great burden on your back. And it's not easy to live with sin and the guilt that it brings, the weight and burden 
that it gives us and that we experience in life because of it. It's like a sack of stones on your back. One of the most interesting things about this particular passage here in Matthew 11 that we have before us is um, is to see that what wearies us the most about about life, all of us have burdens to carry in one way or another. That's why these words in Matthew 11 resonate so much with us. But one of the interesting things to see here um, that that Jesus points to is is that what wearies us the most, the things that burden us the most in life are not so much what we do, but what we believe. Our beliefs lead to incredible burdens that weigh not only our physical bodies down and our lives down, but our very souls. Jesus here speaks of having soul rest, rest for your soul. This is the deepest kind of rest because it meets the deepest burdens, the ones that are there in our souls. All of us have burdens, but what we believe either adds to our burdens or lightens our burdens. This is what Jesus is addressing here in this passage and how he ultimately, as we'll see here in a moment, is the the one that can give true soul rest. Humans come up with different ways of carrying our burdens, this weight, this sack of stones, if you will. We come up with all sorts of different ways of trying to deal with the burden that we all feel and experience in our lives. We might liken this to trying to adjust under the weight. Maybe some of you, have have you ever had to carry a heavy weight for a distance? Maybe up a hill, you know, push a cart, pull a cart. And at some point when you get wore out, you feel like you, you sort of adjust to try and, you know, maybe use a different muscle group or maybe you think if I can reposition myself under it, it'll be a little lighter or I'll be able to get the job complete. Can you relate to that? Some of y'all done that before. I know I certainly have. When I was in Kenya carrying this backpack everywhere and often walking fair distances, I was adjusting. I'd pull one strap off and then sometimes they'd put it on the front or I had it on the back or but I came up with different ways of trying to adjust it and carry it better. And we do that in life. All these burdens that we feel, these soul burdens and physical burdens that we all carry, we try and adjust under that weight. And it sometimes maybe helps a little here or there, but at the end of the day, there's only one real solution, which we'll, again, get to in a moment. But some of us try and just give someone else the burden, Right? We play a card that I've often referred to uh, here in church as maybe what we call the victim card. And we try and lighten our burden by saying, it's not really my burden. It's your fault. You did that to me. I struggle with this because of you. Uh, Maybe there's some generational sin or some wound that you have in your life. And we want to point to others. And that's a way of kind of shifting under the pain or guilt that we feel is by a sort of blame shifting and saying it's somebody else's fault, but in reality it doesn't help. Maybe but for a moment or two. We feel justified. And we shift the blame. But it doesn't remove our part in whatever it is. Another strategy that we often take as 
fallen people in this life to deal with that sack of stones, that burden of guilt on our back, is to try and just make up for it by doing lots of good things and being kind and generous, perhaps. Try and do more good than bad. We think, well, if I can do more good things and help others and be a blessing, and maybe that outweighs the the wrongs and poor decisions and sins that I've committed, then maybe I'll feel better. That's kind of like, again, a, ju- a way of adjusting under the weight. But this was actually one of the errors of the religious leaders whom believe that in this section of Scripture, Jesus may have been talking to here. If you were to flip to Luke chapter 11, verse uh, 46 in your Bible, if you want to flip with me. Luke 11, verse 46. He says, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So this whole, that whole section there is speaking to Pharisees and lawyers, religious leaders, people of influence in that time. And Jesus says, woe to you. You load up burdens that, for people to carry and you don't even carry them uh, rightly yourself. This is a great error that many of the religious leaders of the time were guilty of. Not far from relieving burdens and, and being grace-filled, they were piling them up on people. An example of this would be in Matthew chapter 12. You can feel free to flip there if you want. Matthew chapter 12. This has to do with Sabbath commands. And this, and we won't read the whole passage there, but if you look at it, you can see, I'll just give you one example here. We'll read those first few. Actually, let's go down to, to, um, to uh, verse 9 there. We'll read this example, which has to do with the Sabbath. And he went from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And so they might accuse him. They, you know, they confronted him with this question. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he, answered, then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So they were missing or confusing the letter of the law, perhaps with the spirit of the law. It was important to keep the Sabbath. It was important to set aside a day for worship and refreshment. Right? That was valuable. But they took it so far that it trumped everything else, even doing good and showing grace and mercy to someone in need and in that way that's just one example of how they're heaping burdens on people instead of removing them and by and the way they were doing this was was with what we're talking about here with this particular point that maybe they're trying to make up for some sort of a sense of guilt or burden that they were feeling well if i can do lots of good and obey god's law and even make others obey it then god will receive me and i'll feel better about my burden right this is one way all of us i think struggle at times with this we shift under the weight of our guilt by doing good things to try and make up for it 
But no good deed can undo sins we've committed. We can't erase those things. There's only one thing that can erase those things. And we'll get to that again in a moment. Another strategy that people often take to deal with the weight of guilt and sin in their life is simply ignoring it or writing it off, saying it doesn't exist. These are man-made laws. Religion is all, you know, faith and all that stuff. That's man-made stuff. Just kind of ignore it and act like it's not even a thing. They know maybe something's wrong, but they just try and relieve the burden with perhaps just having fun, living a good life, and however they would define that. So just ignoring it. And perhaps we could come up with even many more strategies or ways that we all uh, maybe even some here in, our, in this room ourselves deal with our burden or maybe people in our family, in our lives, people that are neighbors to us may be trying to deal with the burden of guilt. But Scripture says um, whatever strategy that we take, guilt is there. Guilt is very real. All of us feel it. In some way, some more than others, perhaps some have tried to write it off and say, no, they don't feel guilty. But the reality is all of us are guilty before God. Each of us has sinned and fallen short. And we sin because we are sinners. It's a part of our nature, right? We could point to other uh, creatures in our world that do certain things. Look at the animal kingdom. And they do the things they do because that's their nature, right? That's the way they were made. Right? We are moral creatures and all of us because of our first parents, um, Adam and Eve, because they fell into sin. We have inherited their sin nature. We are moral creatures. We can't escape this. There is right and wrong, good and bad. And each of us has sin. It's even it's a very part of our nature. Our nature was inherited and we can't escape it. Each of us was born into this world in what we would call a state of guilt. And our culture reverses this, actually. Our culture thinks of children as innocent, right? And in some, in some sense, you might say they are. They haven't committed many of the, the evils that adults have, right? But any of you who have children or have been around them even for a few moments know that... Uh, Children are sinful and don't default to doing good. Right? Their first question is not, Mommy, how can I help my brother? Mommy, how can I you know, show kindness to my brother or sister? Nope, that is not the default. The default is mine. I want that. Give me that. Self, right? We are born into this world in a state of guilt. It's a part of our nature. We've inherited from our very from the very first people who sinned. I want to invite you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 22 with me. And again, as we deal with our sin nature, as we deal with this part of us that is broken and, and wants to do wrong and that does not uh, immediately want to um, do what is right and good, as we respond to that, oftentimes we try and make up for it or erase it or deny it. But Scripture says, here's another example of it. There's nothing we can do. Jeremiah 2, 
verse 22. Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. And there are many places we could turn to. That's just one example where Scripture says our guilt is real. We're in a state of guilt and there's nothing you and I can do to undo that. So what do we do? What do we do with this, with this sense, this feeling, this burden that we all have as a result of our faults, our sins, our poor decisions, the brokenness we see in our lives and the lives of those around us? What do we do? What do we do with our guilt? Well, there are really only two options. Only two options. I think all of the things that we've the ways we try and adjust under that weight, uh, those could all be summed up under uh, these options. The first one, which I think fits all the examples we already looked at, is basically to run away from God and hide like Adam and Eve. Whether we justify our actions and justify the things in our lives, whether we ignore them or say they're not there or pretend that we don't have any sin or issues or whatever it might be. It's number one. Run away from God. This is what most of us do. We hide like Adam and Eve. You look back at that story in Genesis 3 that talks about that moment when Adam and Eve sinned. That's what you see. They run and hide. They realize they've done something wrong and they flee. Then they start blaming each other for the problem, Right? Oh, how we do this all the time. We blame others. But the second option, which is the option I want to invite all of you and anyone listening this morning, uh, this is the route to take the road perhaps less traveled, is to turn to God in faith and repentance. To acknowledge you're carrying this burden. To acknowledge your guilt and that you, not someone else, you, did this. You're a part of it. You're weighed down because of yourself. And yeah, maybe others contribute, but a good chunk of the stones in your pack that you're carrying and you're responsible for are your mess. Things that you have done. Turn to God and acknowledge that. That's option number two and certainly what I want to invite you to do this morning. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. This is the kind of approach to our guilt that Paul speaks of here in this passage in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. He speaks of what we call a godly grief, which produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. We might think of worldly grief as some of those other ways of trying to adjust under the weight. You're feeling the weight. You're grieving that you've got this burden. But instead of bringing it to God and truly repenting and laying it down at the cross, you're justifying it or you're saying it's someone else's fault or whatever. That's worldly. That doesn't produce life. That just produces more death. 
But Paul speaks of a godly grief, which is a true sorrow of, over what you've done. And that produces repentance, which leads to salvation without regret. This is what this is the option we should all take. This is the road I want to invite you down. And this is ultimately what Jesus is inviting us into in Matthew 11. Come to me. All you are weary. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. My burden is light. But when we repent of our sins, we're not only forgiven our sins, but our state of guilt is actually changed. So our relationship with God is fundamentally changed at that point. We're no longer in opposition or enmity with God, which is what the Bible says when you're in your sin and you're not repentant over it. You're an enemy of God. Whether you think you're his friend or, or not, your scripture says you are at enmity, at war with God. But when you lay down your burden, confess your sin, that's changed. And now your, your relationship with God at, at its fundamental base point, at its most basic point, is changed. Why? Well, because your debt's been paid. It's no longer held against you. Jesus took that punishment, that debt, that sin, guilt, that burden, the things that are making you feel so guilty. Jesus took it upon himself on the cross, took our sack of stones, carried them, threw them into the bottom of the sea. He took our burden. So our relationship with God is changed. We're now on good footing with God. The sin is gone. The problem is removed and we're in good standing, right standing with God. He's no longer holding anything against us. Is that not good news? That is remarkable news. And Jesus is and was the only one who could do that. And actually some of what we've been talking about in the catechism the last, or we've been saying in the catechism, we haven't really been talking a whole lot about it, but what we've been saying in the catechism at the start of our service is getting at this. These truths we've been reciting, there's a reason why Jesus alone can redeem us from our sin. Why he is the only one who could do this. Romans 8.1, if you would turn there quickly with me. Some of you know this one by heart. This is a good one to memorize when you are dealing with feelings of guilt, which again we'll talk about in just a moment. When you are feeling like, you know, a mess far from God, separated from God, and you claim to be a believer, you come to this passage. First of all, you confess, God, I feel guilty. Maybe, maybe you have sinned. Maybe you do need to confess once again to God your sin. Right? That's why we do that every time we gather here on Sundays, because I think that's so important. It's a basic part of our Christian life. We should confess our sins together. But here's a promise when you do that to remember. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. That is good news, brothers and sisters. That is good news. And Jesus was the only one who could accomplish what was needed so that that could be true for you and me. Some of you may be hanging on to your 
guilt. And you've, maybe you've been forgiven by God. You've come to Him in repentance and faith and received Christ. And, and God has given His declaration of no condemnation. You are forgiven. But you still feel guilty. Maybe you deal with feelings of guilt. Maybe, and maybe for some, I actually said this to the people in Kenya, partly because I felt that maybe this was a cultural thing. Um, and that's why I added this into my notes. But maybe there's this idea that feeling guilty is humble. Right? Well, I am a wretched sinner, so I should feel guilty all the time. So you feel like it's kind of a humble thing to be, to be that way. But it's not. It's actually not humble. It's actually kind of arrogant. Because God has said, you're forgiven. God has said, your sins are on the cross. They're, they're done. I killed them with Jesus. They're in the grave. I no longer hold them over you. You're no longer condemned. And you say, well, I don't believe that. I don't think that's true. I still need to drag myself across the coals and feel guilty and, and agonize over my sin and agonize over my sin and, and hold it over myself, even though God's not holding it over me anymore. I need to keep holding it over myself. And everyone, oftentimes the people around me too, I need to hold it over them. Even though they've received Jesus and God has forgiven them, I'm going to hold it up. So you see how it's kind of a, it's an unbelieving thing. It's an arrogant thing. God has said something to be true and to be the case. And we're rejecting that and saying, no, it's not enough. Jesus wasn't enough, God. Now I've got to feel guilty for the rest of my life. That's wrong. Jesus' sacrifice is enough for whatever your sin is. And the humble thing to do is to say, I agree with you, God. I agree with you. And I believe and receive your promise. That's actually being humble. That's humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God and agreeing with what he says to be the case. That's the humble thing to do. In this passage, Jesus speaks of a rest for your soul. This is the deepest kind of rest. And it will only come, first of all, by doing that. Believing God, right? Receiving what He's said about you to be true and what He's done on the cross for you to be true. I believe that, God. But also, day by day, taking the yoke of Christ upon yourself. Here, Jesus speaks in this passage about taking His yoke upon us. What is a yoke? I'm assuming most of you know this better than me. <laughs> this is farming country here. Well, a yoke is like a wooden cross beam, a beam that's fastened over the necks of, of two animals and, and often attached to a plow or some kind of cart. And it allows the two animals to share the load and pull it together. The Bible sometimes uses this metaphor of a yoke to describe the difficulty of some burden or a job that needs to be done. Right, so a yoke is, is a thing that needs to, a responsibility, a, a burden of some kind that has to be carried, something that needs to be performed. Well, Jesus here uses this metaphor to speak of a spiritual burden. Right? Obviously, Jesus wasn't an ox. 
You and I are not oxen. Right? So he's speaking of a spiritual burden, a spiritual work or a job that must be done. And we are to be yoked with Christ in doing this job. What is the point of this? In some ways, it can be a slightly misleading if you don't think carefully about it, because it implies in some ways that that Jesus is doing a part of the salvation work and we're doing a part of the salvation work. Eh, wrong. That's not how to think of it. Jesus did all the work in terms of our salvation and our justification. All the work. So what's our part? What's our part? In another place, Jesus answers that very question. Okay, So I want to point you to another place where Jesus responds to a question. This is in John chapter 6. This actually was the verse that, that I had put. We had two cakes at our wedding. Yeah, we were that kind of people. They had two cakes, not one. We had two. There was the, the nice bridal cake and then my little, you know, yeah, gluten-free, you know, little small, tiny groom's cake off to the side. Um, her cake got all the attention, believe me. But on my cake, uh, it was our cake, true, true. And the groom's cake was our cake, too. Um, so turn to John 6. And on, on um, the groom's cake, the little brown, gluten-free, small one on the side, I'm not bitter about that or anything. Uh, I'm joking. We had John 6, 29 written on that we had the address right we didn't have the whole verse on there but we had john six twenty nine on the top of the cake and i just love 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 this verse people come to jesus in verse 28 and they say to him what must we do to be doing the works of god and what's jesus's answer this is the work of god that you believe in him whom he has sent Our work is a work of faith. It's a work of trusting. It's a work of resting in His work, in what He has done, that it is complete and sufficient. And those who are doing that, those who are working and laboring in faith, not thinking that all my good deeds are, you know, are they going to be thrown in the scale and be enough at the end of, of time at the end of my life to outweigh the bad deeds. No, that's not why we do good things. That's not why we walk this road. That's, that's a burden. That's back to the old yoke of trying to obey the law and do everything perfectly. No. Jesus has done all of that. His obedience was enough. It was perfect. His sacrifice, enough for our debt. So our work is a labor of trusting and believing. It's a work in fighting day after day to rest in what He has done. And that's hard. This is not like kick your feet back on the couch and pop in the popcorn. No. This requires effort. This is God is working within us to work to will and to do and, and to, to be diligent and to work out our salvation. But it's not a meriting kind of work where it's thrown in the scales. At the end of our life. This is hard work. But it is a labor of rest. It's a work of of rest. Psalm 62. 
I'm going to wrap up here in just a moment. Psalm 62, verses 5 and 6. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. God is our hope. He only is my rock and my salvation. This is a work of trust. He is my rock. My, he is my fortress. What he's done for me, who he is, is my rock. Not, did I have a good day today? Not, did I obey all the commands today? Not, did I get everything right today? That's not our rock. That's not our hope. That's not our fortress. God is. And our struggle is day by day to believe that and to rest in that. And I think people who are truly doing that will walk in the way of Jesus. Right? It produces fruit, good fruit, if we are really, if this is our real heart's cry. In verse 25 of our passage before us today, which actually let me think I've got it here in the bulletin. I have it right before me. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Isn't that interesting? That right before talking about the yoke and the come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, that he has these words. Children are the models of the kind of faith that God commands of us. Isn't that fascinating? Children are the models. In fact, Jesus in another place says that if you don't become like one of these children, you won't inherit the kingdom. What is he saying? He's certainly not saying that our minds should be underdeveloped or we should reason or think like children. No. Right? There's other places in the scriptures where it says, grow up in your faith, right? Grow up in your salvation. But children are very trusting, right? Children are very dependent, trusting. This is what Jesus is getting at. And it is people that depend on God, that trust God, that find this rest, that have this rest. This is a trusting faith. Again, does it mean people who do this, their lives are shielded from problems or difficulty or, or hard work or intense struggle? No, but kids somehow, again, children that were raised in, in good godly homes will observe mom and dad struggling, having a hard time often. But somehow children say, oh, mom and dad will figure it out. They'll figure it out. Maybe they have you know, moments of anxiety and all of that, of course. But mom and dad will figure it out. That's what Jesus is saying. It's trust and reliance upon God. This gives relief and rest to the soul. And you will find relief from your burden of guilt also if you will trust in the work that Jesus has done. Whatever your burden is, whether it's some tangible, very practical, in-your-face situation right now, or whether it's that deep soul burden, which is what is Jesus is speaking to in this passage, 
you will find rest. If you come to Jesus, come to Him in faith and trust His promise and what He has said to you in the Gospel. You will find that rest. Take His yoke, a yoke of walking by faith. Not trying to do everything and fix everything and make it all right and constantly be perfect. But a yoke of trusting in His perfect work. And that He is the solution and the one that will work it all out. Come to Jesus like a child. Rest in what He's done. This is the work of God. That you believe in Him whom He has sent. Amen. This is the word of God for you today. Now we'll respond with a song that is good to sing to the Lord. And this one is going to knock home some of what we have talked about or heard this morning. I'm going to get Felicia to cue it up and I'm going to pray as we turn to the Lord in a song of response. Lord, for all those who heard this word this morning, I pray, Holy Spirit, come and make sense of it. Holy Spirit, take my words, which I hope were very close to what was you wanted to say to your people this morning, Lord. Take them and apply them to, to their hearts. Help them to understand and live these things out, God. And would we have a trusting faith? And would our day-to-day fight not be to earn your approval, not to, not to be secure a seat in heaven, but to realize that you've done all the work. Let it be a, a, a work of rest, a work of trusting, fighting to believe your promises which are true for us in Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.